episode uh let me actually look that up 
What episode is it? Isn't it great that we've done so many now? I actually have to look it up. 28. So episode 28 of uh, For All Time. It is Friday, July 1st, 3.22 p.m. I uh, just listened to the other podcast, Reality Issues, with Kathy, and I'm very happy about how it came out. It's wonderful. Now I'm going to read a bunch of articles today. And then I'm going to have a guest soon, but um, there's just been so many things stacking up lately that I've just really, really enjoyed. Such as this uh, Sunday, June 26, 2022, uh, classic Peanuts from 1975 in the uh, Fort Myers News Press, part of the USA Today Network, news-press.com. Do you know any good rules for living, Chuck? Peppermint Patty asks. Uh, Charlie Brown. Keep the ball low. Don't leave your crayons in the sun. Use dental floss every day. Give four weeks' notice when ordering a change of address, and don't spill the shoe polish. Always knock before entering. Don't let the ants get in the sugar. Never volunteer to be program chairman. Always get your first serve in, and feed your dog whenever he's hungry. And she replies, Will those rules give me a better life, Chuck? And Charlie Brown replies, A better life and a fat dog. And I'm just going down to the Garfield down below. The, uh, the deck image here is uh, Garfield holding on, holding on to the back of an ice cream truck. Music notes flying out the back. Bubble font Garfield. First image. Garfield with his butt and tail sticking out of a box. John looking on. Not amused. John says, I'll never understand why cats find boxes so fascinating. Garfield's tail has been shifted to the other direction. Little animation lines coming off the other side, showing his tail's moving. Then Garfield in the next frame replies in his head, don't knock it till you tried it, in his best Bill Murray impression voice. John looks shocked. Then John looks at the empty box in the next frame. Another frame goes by. John is looking at the box going, hmm, intrigued. And then um, the doctor who told John that he drank dog cum um, walks up and sees him basically shoving his head and whole body into this tiny Garfield-sized box going, say, that's it. That's the, that's the comic. That's it. So I was reading, uh, I was reading the... New York Times book review from last week, right? Mm -hmm. There's a date on this. June 26th issue. I came across something uh, in our review here that was titled, First, Let's Kill All the Logical Positivists. I don't need to re read the review. Um, but it's about uh, four women brought philosophy back to life. The book is called Metaphysical Animals. I have it here in hardcover now. Um wonderful book super interesting i'm just gonna read a little bit here from the book itself in the introduction the history of european philosophy is usually oh i should also list off the authors of course this is by uh 
uh, Clara McCumail and Rachel Wiseman, although they are from England, so it's perhaps uh, possible that uh, I have no idea how to pronounce uh, their names. The history of European philosophy is usually the story of the ideas, visions, hopes, and fears of men. It is also the story of ideas, visions, hopes, and fears of men who have, in the main, lived unusually isolated lives, away from women and children. Practically all the great European philosophers have been bachelors, wrote the philosopher Mary Midgley in 1953. This was the first line of a script for a radio talk commissioned by the BBC, but rejected. Mary's observation concerning the marital status of philosophers was a trivial, irrelevant intrusion of domestic matters into intellectual life, said the producer. But Mary argued that the solipism, skepticism, and individualism that is characteristic of the Western philosophical tradition would not feature in a philosophy written by people who had shared intimate friendships with spouses and lovers, been pregnant, raised children, and enjoyed rich and full and varied human lives. This book tells a history with four women philosophers and their friendship at its center. Mary Midgley, Nate Scrutton, Iris Murdoch, Elizabeth Anscombe, and Philippa Foote, née Basquinet, came of age during some of the most tumultuous events in the 20th century. Born just after the First World War, they began their philosophical studies at Oxford University, shortly after Hitler's troops entered Austria. In fact, Mary was staying in Vienna when the troops arrived. She had embarked on a trip to improve her German before going up to college, reassured by her school teacher that the trouble in Europe would blow over. She returned home after signs went up in the shop windows. If you come in here as a true German, let your greeting be Heil Hitler. The events that unfolded over the coming years would change the human scene. Nazism, the Holocaust, total war, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This generation was brought face to face with acts of depravity and disorder that those who lived before them would hardly have thought possible. Iris Murdoch observed that French and British philosophers seemed to respond very differently to post-Nazi reality. The French experience of occupation infused French post-war philosophy and literature, while Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophy explored the moral and political implications of freedom and attempted to understand whether authenticity and sincerity were possible for those who had lived through Vichy France, the British had suffered no such crisis. Instead, in 1945's Oxford... Uh, <laughs> In 1945, Oxford's men returned from their war work, rolled up their sleeves, and picked up where they had left off. The task that the young men had begun before the interruption of the war was a bold one, to kill off the subject formerly known as philosophy, and to replace it with a new set of logical, analytic, and scientific methods, known as logical positivism. Speculative metaphysical inquiry, the pursuit of knowledge of human nature, morality, God, reality, truth, and beauty, was to give way to clarification and linguistic analysis in the service of science. The only questions permitted were those that could be answered by empirical methods. What is the meaning of human life? How ought we to live? Does God exist? Is time real? What is truth? What is beauty? Metaphysical questions like these go beyond the limits of what we can measure and observe, so they were designated nonsense. Banished, too, was the old philosophical nature of man as a spiritual creature whose life is oriented toward God or the good, and for whom philosophy is the attempt to contemplate the fundamental structure of reality. In its stead, a vision of human beings as efficient calculating machines, which is uh, crucial if you've ever watched any Adam Curtis documentary, individuals whose intellectual powers enable them to move beyond their messy animal nature so as to organize and rationalize an otherwise brute and formless world. 
it was declared that there were no genuine philosophical problems. Questions that were not amenable to scientific investigation were embarrassing muddles or linguistic confusions. Had it not been for the interruption of war, Mary, Iris, Elizabeth, and Philippa may have well joined the men in the effort to usher in the brave new world of a philosophy divested of poetry, mystery, spirit, and metaphysics. Or, more likely, they would have finished their degrees and left philosophy behind them, convinced, as so many young women still are, that the subject was not for them. What happened instead was that the young men and the big beasts of British philosophy, A.J. Eyre, Gilbert Ryle, and J.L. Austin, were uprooted from Oxford and replanted in Whitehall and the War Office. Our four friends were left behind to finish their degrees in a, dispute, in, uh, in a disrupted Oxford, full of evacuees from London and refugees from Europe, and philosophy began to come back to life. The old metaphysicians were free once again to speak of poetry, transcendence, wisdom, and truth. The conscientious objectors asked what God and duty required of them. The refugee academics, speaking in a language that was not their own, shared scholarship and learning of a kind of Oxford that had never been seen before. And the women, no longer in classrooms full of clever young men who liked winning arguments, turned their attention together onto the world. They were interested in this, the reality that surrounds man, transcendent or whatever, said Iris. And they had questions, lots of them. I like that line. They were interested in the reality that surrounds man, transcendent or whatever. <laughs> this is how it was for these four women. This is how it was that these four women learned to see philosophy as they did, as an ancient form of human inquiry kept alive through thousands of years of conversation, the task of which is to help us collectively to find our way about in a vast reality that transcends any one of us. When the young men returned from war with their analytic methods and their disdain for mystery and metaphysics, our four friends were ready with a joint no. We began our own philosophical conversation in the summer of 2013, as the writers, of course, writing this directly. We met in Geneva, a two of a small cluster of philosophers gathered to try to understand the nature of dreaming. Each of us saw in the other a fellow philosopher who loved the obscure, ephemeral, and tangential, and had a tendency to ask weird questions. We soon discovered that we shared a common despair at the state of academic philosophy, a discipline that we were both trying to make our way in. We knew that if we were to keep going, we would need to find a way to do philosophy in a more engaged, creative, and open way. We were bored of listening to men talk about books by men about men, and we wanted to philosophize together as friends. We were looking for a story that could help us. Then, on 28th November, a letter appeared in The Guardian under the heading The Golden Age of Female Philosophy. It was from Mary Midgley, a name that we recognized, but not a philosopher whose work appeared on university syllabuses or was discussed in the major professional journals. In that letter, she set out the bare bones of the narrative of what you are about to read. She explained how she and her friends, Iris, Elizabeth, and Philippa, had flourished in philosophy, a subject famously inhospitable to women because at the crucial moment, the men had been called away to war. The trouble is not, of course, men as such, the letter went on. Men have done good enough philosophy in the past. She appeared to be suggesting, with a wink, that it was about time to consider what kind of philosophy women had done and would do. The cosmos seemed to have delivered us just what we had asked for, and right on our doorstep. 
Before we knew it, we were frequent visitors at a retirement home in a Newcastle suburb, just a few miles away from our own homes, and in regular conversation with Mary Midgley. Sunk into her armchair, she spoke of the authors of the books on her shelves as if they had just left the room, passing us papers, notes, and clippings from little heaps that covered sills, surfaces, and carpet in her tiny living room. Collingwood, Joseph, Price, Wittingstein, Austin, Iyer, Hare. She told us about her friends, all now dead, Iris, Philippa, and Elizabeth. One thing Mary wanted us to understand was what it was like to be the literally at war, in quotes. This was at a time when we had been told, for over a decade, that we were at war on terror. Mary insisted that we know the difference. She said, You are not doing what you would normally be doing. You are not where you would normally be. You are sent about, redirected, restricted. Your family and friends have been moved about too, or killed, or injured, or in danger. It is hard to find out what is happening. The newspapers are not reliable. The radio is propaganda. The letters are censored. Food is scarce. Petrol is rationed. Travel is restricted. The future is uncertain. You are afraid. It is dark. When she told us these things, they were not recollections of a fixed and changeless past, but a living background to the philosophy she wanted to give us. Philosophy is needed in times of chaos, she said, and here was a theory about human life worked out by her, fr- her and her friends, smoking cigarettes to dull the hunger while air raid sirens wailed and the blackout curtains shut out the light. As the world tries to recover from a pandemic and wakes up to the reality of the climate crisis, it is perhaps time to ask again, as these women did after the Second World War, what sort of animal is a human being? What do we need to live well? Is philosophy of any use? After the war, the men on both sides of the English Channel shared a picture of man that still dominates our collective imagination. The hero of modern philosophy, Iris wrote, is the offspring of the age of science. He is free, independent, lonely, powerful, rational, responsible, brave, the hero of so many novels and books of moral philosophy. But he is alienated from his own nature, from the natural world that is his home, and from other humans. For us, now, loneliness and alienation have a distinctive twist. The technological development of the last few decades creates the impression of a world that lies wholly open to view. In a matter of seconds, our computers show us the surface of Mars, the inside of a wasp's nest, the plans for a nuclear reactor. Yet, in the face of the overwhelming complexity of human life and increasingly happy with Airsat's virtual versions of friendship, play, love, and human contact, we are collectively reneging on the task that confronts us. We instead prefer fantasies in which some future generation or AI or scientific innovation will take up the burden for us. But as Mary put it, what actually happens to us will surely be the determined by human choices. Not even the most admirable machines can make better choices than the people who are supposed to be programming them. What we need now is a picture that can help us to understand ourselves in a way that will show us how to go on. We need to be able to see the patterns of action and thought that characterize our lives today and in the past, and understand the possibilities for changing those patterns and the mechanisms by which such change can be wrought. I have listed, quote, men with such objects as cats and turnips, Elizabeth Anscombe wrote in 1944, insisting that any attempt to understand ourselves must begin with the fact that we are living creatures. 
such as cats and turnips, I may editorialize. But while we can study the life of turnips and cats only objectively from the outside, the life of humans must, for humans, be studied from within. And if the task is to discover what we are, then it is one that we must attempt in company, as these women did, in college rooms and dining halls, tea shops and living rooms, by post and in pubs, among nappies and babies. Their habitat, a patchwork of walled gardens, rivers, art galleries, refugee camps, and bombed-out buildings. Seen through the eyes of these friends, a new picture emerges. Our familiar world is transformed into a rich tapestry of interlocking patterns, studded with cultural objects of metaphysical power, teeming with plant, animal, and human life. And we, the human individuals whose lives help to create and sustain those patterns and objects, are seen afresh as the kind of animal whose essence is to, it, it is to question, create, and love. We are metaphysical animals. We make and share pictures, stories, theories, words, signs, and artworks that help us to navigate our lives together. These creations are immensely powerful because they at once show us what is and was the case and at the same time suggest new ways of going on. They show us what becomes our shared past is always provisional. The past is kept alive through testimony and preservation and, as such, is mutable and easily elided or lost. But because the past is a living thing, discoveries we make now can affect our history. We can see our past differently, and we can rewrite what we understand to have happened. Different pasts await us. We have reconstructed this past by joining together fragments from letters, journals, photos, conversations, notebooks, reminiscences, and postcards to make pictures. Those pictures make patterns held in place by the most important one of all, the enfolding, interweaving lives of four startlingly, startlingly brilliant women. We meet them as teenagers on the cusp of a war and follow them as they struggle to find their way in a challenging intellectual and political scene. We leave them in their late 30s, stepping onto the world stage, their names in print, and their voices on the radio. Each woman suggests a different way to live a life dedicated to the task of making sense of the world. Each found different solutions to the practical, intellectual, and psychological problems of philosophizing while female. And all drew strength from their friendships with each other. The lives of these women, in turn, illuminate a counter-narrative to the prevailing history of 20th century philosophy. Its heroes are not A.J. Iyer, J.L. Austin, and R.M. Hare, but characters you may not know, H.H. Price. H.W.B. Joseph, Susan Stebbing, R.G. Collingwood, Dorothy Emmett, Mary Glover, Donald McKinnon, and Lot Lebowski. This counter-narrative connects contemporary philosophy with the great speculative metaphysicians of the 19th and early 20th centuries, idealists and realists who struggled to understand the nature of truth, reality, and goodness before the turn to linguistic analysis saw philosophy lower its sights to the meaning of the words true, real, and good. It shows that asking and seeking to answer metaphysical questions is a natural and essential part of human life. It connects seemingly abstract and esoteric inquiries with the urgent and real, ethical, practical, and spiritual questions that confront each of us in our day-to-day -day lives. Cutting across this story are the grand historical arcs of Western philosophical thought, Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Descartes, Hume, Kant, Hegel, Frege, uh, Frege, mm -mm. I never actually knew the pronunciation of that one. 
Wittenstein, and more. Literal more. And, of course, disputing all these lives and patterns is the great chaos in, of the 20th century of refugees, migrants, murder, and war, death, and confusion. Yes, precisely. <sighs> Reset my flow state here. The book begins with a scene that poses a philosophical question. It is 1956, and Elizabeth Anscombe stands before the dons of Oxford University and declares the former president of the United States, Harry S. Truman, the man who ordered the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, is a mass murderer and must not be given an honorary degree. Almost unanimously, the dons disagree, and Truman is feted. Elizabeth is puzzled. What does she see that they do not? If they are inclined to honor a man famous for the merciless killing of tens of thousands of innocent people, she says, they have lost their way. The philosophy of this book is a map back to that place. You can read it as a story and take away from it a picture of human life that will help you see our everyday world as these women did, as something astonishing and fragile and in need of constant care and attention. And you can read it as a philosophical... <laughs> And you can read it as a philosophical argument, one that brings philosophy back to life. If you can, you should read it with friends. And I am. <sighs> well, I'm going to pause right there. Maybe we'll come back to that in a little bit. But, and we'll definitely come back to it in the future. Uh, everything I've read of this book so far is tremendous. I'm in love with it. But, let me mix it up here. NASA mission to asteroid gets delayed. This is uh, Sunday, June 26, 2022, National Section, Kenneth Chang. Computer software delays push back the launch of a NASA spacecraft to explore what appears to be a metal asteroid that may be the core of a protoplanet that was blown apart in the early days of the solar system by a giant collision. Now, the mission will not get off the ground at all this year, NASA announced on Friday. The completed spacecraft, named Psyche, after the asteroid it is to visit in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter, is sitting at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida and had been scheduled to launch from there on August 1st aboard a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. However, the key navigation software for guiding and controlling the spacecraft's movements in space was several months late. In addition, the testing setup, which sends signals to the spacecraft computer, making it think it is already in space, did not work properly when the engineers tried to merge components from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, which is managing the mission, and Maxar, the company that built the Psyche spacecraft. Don't forget, Maxar Technology is also the company that powered the, sa the commercial satellites that were re recently used when the media was able to uncover information um, about what was going on in uh, the border between Russia and Ukraine before the military had access to it. The testing setup is working now, mission officials said, and they know of no problems with the software, but the debugging process will require weeks to months to finish. We just ran out of time on this one. Lindy Elkins-Tanton of the Arizona State University the principal investigator for the mission said Friday during a news conference. Last month, NASA announced that the launch attempt would be pushed back to no earlier than September 20th rather than August 1st in order to successfully meet up with the asteroid when conditions would be best for studying it. The mission would have had to launch by October 11th. We have looked at many, many options, said Lori Leshen, director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and even with a very aggressive adjustment, we did not feel confident enough that we would reach this, and that we, 
that and that we would successfully reach this window with a mission that we were confident to fly. NASA is forming an independent review panel to investigate what went wrong and suggest what should be done next. NASA officials said it was too early to know how much the delay would add to the $985 million price tag, which includes the Falcon Heavy launch. The review panel could even recommend canceling the mission. NASA had selected the Psyche mission in 2017 as one of two low-cost missions submitted by scientists. The other, Lucy, to study so-called Trojan asteroids caught in the same orbit as Jupiter by the planet's gravity, launched last year. That spacecraft had problems with one of its solar power arrays, but continues to travel. From radar observations, Psyche, the asteroid, uh, appears to appears ellipsoid in shape, uh, about as wide as the state of Massachusetts. It is also much denser than most asteroids. Psyche is also very bright, adding to suspicions that it is made out of metal. The mission was originally scheduled to launch in 2023, but development went smoothly enough to move the launch date up by year. The revised trajectory would have arrived earlier in 2026 instead of 2030. Now, the Psyche mission team is back to considering launches in 2023 and 2024, and the spacecraft would not reach the asteroid until 2029 or 2030. The setback does not just delay Psyche, but also the Janus mission, two small, identical spacecraft that were to tag along for launch before heading off to explore two pairs of binary asteroids. The delay from August to September had already, been scram uh, had already scrambled the plans to reach the original targets, now that mission will have to look for other asteroids to visit. Another NASA mission at the Kennedy Space Center announced better news on Friday. In preparation of the maiden launch of the Space Launch System, the huge rocket that is to take astronauts back to the moon, NASA engineers have been conducting practice countdowns of the rocket at the launch pad, including the loading of liquid propellants. The fourth attempt at the dress rehearsal, which ended on Monday, counted down to 29 seconds. NASA had hoped that practice would count down to about nine seconds just before the engines would ignite for the real launch, but a persistent fuel line connector leak prevented that. Still, NASA officials decided that they now have enough data to get the rocket ready for its launch, a mission that will send a capsule without astronauts aboard on a trip around the moon. That could still occur in late August, the officials said, but it was too early to set a more precise launch date. Interesting. Here's another update by uh, one Kenneth Chang. Return to Moon starts with the launch of a 55-pound cube. The Moon can expect a tiny visitor, about the size of a microwave, to its orbit this fall. The spacecraft is named Capstone, all caps, one word, and is scheduled to launch on Monday. Maybe it launched, who knows. Craft to act as scout for crewed missions. In the coming years, NASA will be busy at the moon. A giant rocket will loft a capsule with no astronauts aboard around the moon and back, perhaps before the end of summer. A parade of robotic landers will drop off the experiments on the moon to collect reams of scientific data, especially about water ice locked up in the polar regions. A few years from now, astronauts could return to there over half a century since the last Apollo moon landing, supposedly. They are all part of NASA's 21st century moon program named for Artemis, who in Greek mythology was the twin sister of Apollo. Early on Monday, a spacecraft named Capstone is scheduled to launch as the first piece of Artemis to head to the moon. Compared to what is to follow, it is modest in size and scope. There won't be any astronauts aboard Capstone. The spacecraft is too tiny, about as big as a microwave oven. 
this robotic probe won't land on the moon. But it is in many ways unlike any previous mission to the moon. It could serve as a template for public-private partnerships that NASA could undertake in the future to get a better bang for its buck on interplanetary voyages. Quote, NASA has gone to the moon before, but I'm not sure it's ever been put together like this, said Bradley Cheatham, chief executive and president of Advanced Space, the company that is managing the mission for NASA. Coverage of the launch will begin at 5 a.m. Eastern, etc. It happened. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. There we go. That's not that. Can Nolton 91 computer scientist turn artist dies? Mm-hmm. Obituaries. Baxter Black 77 dies. Popular cowboy poet who elevated genre. Sheldon Griswold. Research scientist, humanitarian. Stuart H. Smith. Age 61, native of New Orleans, where they have passed away peacefully. Paris, France. Anyway. Enough of that. Where was I going with this one? Oh, yeah, it's the other side. Right? No? What was it? Bill Gates' charity could get nothing. Jewels are banned. I don't know why I have that one there. Oh, okay. Here we go. Um, mm-hmm. 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 An elitist bear is trying to rub elbows and paws with members of this private country club. The club at The Strand in Naples, Florida, says a brazen Bruin has been strolling the tennis courts and golf course. The club announced its newest member on the Facebook, explaining the bear has not been aggressive. It shuffles out of people's way and is sensitive to noise. That's by Angela Barbuti from The Wires. It's one tasty oil spill. Police, volunteer firefighters, and a hazmat team in Newton, New Jersey, cleaned up close to 150 gallons of tahini sesame seed oil used to make dishes like hummus and baba ganoush that spilled from a truck onto a roadway. Scottish businessman Cecilio di Chiaca bought an entire Italian village in the region of... I'm going to say this right. Between Rome and Naples. Let's say it. The rural hamlet Borgo e Chacha, which is named after his family, dates back to the 1500s, but was abandoned for decades after the last resident died. He just finished 10 years of renovations on buildings there with the goal of luring new residents. A very popular thing out there. You can go buy some cheap-ass fucking thing as long as you take care of it and maintain it. Interesting. Who knows? Weird. But real... Um, let's see. The Hamptons is buzzing that the mystery buyer of Montauk Airport, which sold this month to an unknown party, is either former Google big Eric Schmidt or hedge fund titan Israel Englander. Sources familiar with the deal said that Schmidt is the name on everyone's lips, but that the buyer is actually the Millennium Management's Englander. 
We heard the private airport sold for $14 million. It was previously listed for $18 million. And Hampton's lawyer involved with the transaction, Leon, uh, Leonard Ackerman, declined to comment. Reps for Schmidt and Englander didn't get back to us. The tiny airport became part of a local controversy over the larger East Hampton Airport, which was meant to close to the public on May 17th and then reopen as a private one with uh, new restrictions. But the plan didn't move forward after several local lawsuits were filed and a judge has issued a temporary restraining order over halting East Hampton's plans. The East Hampton Airport's plan to go private made locals fear that flights would then be diverted over to Montauk. Reporters reports also said that Blade Air Mobility was interested in buying Montauk Airport. Blade was one of the parties that filed a lawsuit against East Hampton Airport's plan to go private. Sources also said that page, uh, to page six that Blade was interested in buying the Montauk site, but Blade has not commented. Perry Chip Doria, an owner of a nearby airstrip, told the local radio outlet Star on Monday that Montauk Airport sold but would not comment on the buyer and said... I am sure they will reveal their identity at the proper time. He added of the sale, there have been a number of parties who have come forward over the last years and shown varying degrees of interest, particularly relative to the situation at East Hampton Airport. It has kind of waxed and waned, if you will, but recently things seem to ramp up a bit. The ultimate conclusion was, of course, a transaction. Like father, like son. This is in uh, the New York Post, Sunday, June 26, 2022. Also, like father, like son, Method Man is working on an album with his eldest, Shah, who goes by the moniker Fifth Power with X over the O. We hear that Wu-Tang Clan veteran announced the news on stage at Irving Plaza at an event for NFT company Artie. Method Man introduced his son to the crowd and let everyone know that they are working on an album together, said an attendee. It was really cute. A proud moment. In quotes, Power is part of a second generation Wu-Tang group alongside Young Dirty Bastard, son of the late Old Dirty Bastard, as well as Ghostface Killer's son, Sun God, and You God's son, Intel. Method Man worked with the group on a remix in 2020. After a brief hiatus from the Hamptons scene, Jill Zarin is back this summer with her luxury luncheon, which used to be an annual fixture out east. The popular event will take place on Saturday, July 16th at private location in Southampton and will honor her late husband, Bobby Zarin, and his long battle with thyroid cancer. It will benefit the Zarin Memorial Trust. This was one of Bobby's favorite events, and he's definitely looking down on us. Happy we are continuing his legacy, and so proud of his stepdaughter, Ali Shapiro, too. Zarin of the event. She's working with event planners. Says Zarin of the event. She's working with event planners uh, from Ticket to Events. The reason I bring that up is I just love keeping up with a little bit of what's going on out there. Ins and outs. Who runs those parties? Parties like that, man. That's where everything's happening. Now that you didn't know that. Oh, what am I saying here? I wrote down some words at the top of this. Making notes and choosing which lines to follow. Consequential. Uh, made a note that says, invite random nanity into your life. Don't know what that meant. Doesn't matter. Uh, yep, move past that one. Here's the comics again. 
Let's see what the Lockhorns are saying. Not good enough. Let's see. Royals report. Queen Elizabeth II traveled to her original uh, residence in Scotland, official residence in Scotland on Monday, to open a week of traditional events, starting with an ancient ceremony at the Palace of the Holy Roadhouse. <laughs> no, Palace of Holy Roadhouse. Uh, the 96-year-old monarch, who has recently cut back on public appearances due to mobility issues, took part in the ceremony of the keys in Edinburgh. She was symbolically offered the keys of the city and welcomed to her ancient and hereditary kingdom of Scotland. Tradition dictates that she returns them, entrusting their safekeeping to the city's elected officials. Gotta keep turning those keys over. John Cusack's 56, Kathy Bates is 74, and Mel Brooks is 96. Making waves. Sean Diddy Combs was the man of the night at Sunday's BET Awards, where he was honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award. After a tribute performance featuring... Mary J. Blige, Lil' Kim, and Diddy himself. Yay, who's uh, rocked a mask covering his face. Gave a speech about the 52-year-old rapper. This man has been through and survived a lot of stuff and broken down a lot of doors. So we could be standing here. Yay said. He broke down so many doors of classism, taste, culture, and sweat. Arlington, Oregon. The state is ramping up efforts to deal with giant Mormon crickets and grasshoppers that can ravage crops. The legislature last year allocated $5 million to assess the problem has set up a suppression program. Another $1.2 million was approved this month. Some environmental groups oppose the programs, which rely on aerial spraying of pesticides. Under the new initiative, landowners can request the Oregon Department of Agriculture to, to survey their land. If ODA finds more than three Mormon crickets or eight grasshoppers per square yard, it will recommend chemical treatment. Some areas near Arlington, surveyed in May, soon after the hatch, had 201 Mormon, quick <laughs> 201 Mormon crickets per square yard. And if you're looking at these Mormon crickets, they can be the size of your goddamn hand. That's a lot of Mormon crickets. Oh, feel like Waze is judging you? Get directions from a dog. Navigation app vocals can get annoying. Driving motorists to switch to others. By Haley Velasco and Soraya Zahir. Buck Showalter, the manager of the New York Mets, took things in an unusual direction in May. During a televised press conference, he went on tangent about hitting traffic, getting to the ballpark that day, and managed he had just changed the voice on Waze, his navigation app. The guy with the English accent was really pissing me off, Mr. Showalter says, arms crossed, very smug, and like, miss it again. Millions of drivers use GPS navigation with voice commands, and this summer will be no exception. Car travel is expected to set a record this July 4th weekend, despite high gas prices, according to travel group AAA. So far, I'm seeing that this is an ad for both Waze and AAA. All this driving means spending more time with strange sidekicks that can be, like passengers, sometimes pleasant company, sometimes annoying and bossy. Mr. Showalter added that he got along better with the Waze voice of the Cookie Monster. That guy, he said, of the Sesame Street character. You can't get mad at the Cookie Monster. 
I'm sure you fucking can. He eats all those cookies. Maybe you don't want to eat those cookies. Maybe they're your cookies and he's eating them. That's not cool. You know, he has shame. Or doesn't he? Maybe we should all try to be the cookie monster. He now uses the voice name Nathan because it reminds him of his son, Nathan. Huh. Waze, the popular crowdsourced GPS app that advises motorists about traffic and routes, offers 140 vocal options in 56 languages at any given time, and has featured the voices including Christine Aguilera, Kailani, Morgan, um, next page, A6. Morgan Freeman, Italiano Giovanni, in quotes, I have no idea what that is, Cupid, Talking cat, sarcastic, and a dog, upbeat. Garmin, dog, upbeat. <laughs> this is me, dog, upbeat, in quotes. In parentheses. Uh, Garmin personal navigation voices have included American English. <laughs> what? Samantha and Michelle. Samantha and Michelle sound like real dullards, quibbled an otherwise rosy 2021 review on Walmart.com. The Samantha voice has since retired, said Garmin spokeswoman Krista Klaus, who quipped that Samantha was old school. In a story as old as time, Samantha got leapfrogged by newer competition, this one named Zoe. Zoe replaced Samantha, says Mrs. Klaus. Currently, Garmin personal navigation devices support both American English Michelle or American English Zoe. But Zoe is the default for most devices now, she says. Zoe, she says, is a bit more precise. So instead of turn right in 1,000 feet, you get turn right after XYZ auto body. Things can get strange last fall. Some users of Google Maps another navigation option, reported that the voice on apps was suddenly switching to an Indian accent. Google replied it was fixing the bug. At the end of May, in France, Waze launched three new regional navigation voices, Provencial, Kiti, uh, and Toulouse. Kiti. I don't know that one. Chosen via a poll on Waze's France... Uh, Waze France's social media channels and recorded by local speakers. The roads aren't always the happiest places to be, said Tim Queenan, Waze's director of global marketing. We also want to uplift your day a bit. It goes on. Other voices. They have Mr. T, um, etc. Interesting. That's enough. You know, we're going to take one quick little break here. Um, uh, BRB bio. You can listen to um, uh, my dishwasher. Thank you.
Man, I have that song stuck in my head. All right. 51 minutes on the clock. I think we can play this one out. Got enough stories here for as long as I want to go, and I'm just going to keep going until I don't want to go anymore. Fuck, I love Cherry Coke so much. Yeah, everyone knows I love Coca-Cola products, and I will admit, it is uh, I drink the sugar stuff. Quite a bit of it. Um, you got to have some vices in your life, and if the roughest one on my body is soda, I'm okay with that. Um, okay. In France, let me adjust this microphone since it needs to uh, point towards my mouth like a regular microphone. Hello. Okay. Turn the game to. Check the headphones here. All right. Hello. That's much better. Okay. In France, YouTubers become the new faces of political news for young audiences. And if you're asking me if this is French Q. Um, yes. In France, YouTubers become the new faces of political news for young audiences. By Adèle Cordonnier. Paris. At first glance, the office looks like that of any video production startup. Modern furniture, a video game console, a Buzz Lightyear action figure, and nobody who works, uh, ugh, nobody who looks over 30. But the bustling office in a hip neighborhood of Paris is, in fact, just one of France's most successful new newsrooms. From here, Hugo Travers, often dressed in a hoodie and sneakers, posts the top stories of the day to his huge audience on YouTube and other social platforms, using videos and text to reach young people across France who are increasingly shunning traditional media. This generation grew up with social media, Mr. Travers, who is 25 and is known online as Hugo de Crypt. Uh, Decote. Yeah. Hugo. Hugo? No, because, yeah. Am I French? I'm getting the back. Don't worry. I'm, I'm doing uh, Duolingo. Hugo Decote. We'll go with that. Or Hugo Deciphers. I said in the interview. We'll call him Hugo Deciphers. They won't start reading in a newspaper or watching TV news at 30. Well, yeah, but nobody's asking them to with 1.6 million subscribers on his main channel on youtube 2 million followers on instagram and 2.4 million on tiktok hugo decrypt has become a leading news source for young french people mr travers has interviewed bill gates president emmanuel macron of france and 10 of the 12 candidates in the country's presidential election this year his success, which has spawned several imitators, comes as interest in the news among young French people has fallen to the lowest levels in 20 years, according to one poll. Whose news, who's interested in it, this is all subjective. That doesn't mean anything. People aged 18 to 29 are also less likely than older adults to think news outlets are doing a good job at getting the facts right or covering all the important stories of the day, another poll found. This new generation of YouTubers have professionalized. They have formats that work to such an extent that presidential candidates know they must be interviewed by them to address the quote-unquote next generation, is what I'm going to say, said Justine 
Rist, Managing Director of E2 France. To me, the fact that um, presidential candidates know they have to be interviewed by uh, YouTube celebrities, like what's going on? While the methods, I'm trying to get in a comfortable, there we go. While the methods of Mr. Travers and other YouTubers have helped them reach a large new audience of people who may not otherwise seek out news sources, some critics say they nonetheless pose significant challenges for journalism and news literacy in France. The sheer amount of online content aimed at this audience is also contributing to informational uh, chaos and confusion about what is news and what is misinformation media analysts say. Media analysts love to determine what is news and what is uh, not news. Don't they? Funny. The difficulty is the multiplication of YouTubers, said Elena Pavel, a history and geography teacher at Collège Georges Renault, a middle school located in a low-income neighborhood of Paris and a coordinator for Clemmy, a media literacy program within the education ministry. Young people don't, quote, make absolutely no distinction between an opinion YouTuber and a news, a news YouTuber, she added, setting the danger of false information and conspiracy theories spreading. Still, she said she had no hesitation recommending Mr. Travers to her students. Mr. Travers, a chatty and cheerful graduate of Sciences Po, an elite Parisian university, said he started his YouTube channel in 2015 because he sensed a discrepancy between how news was traditionally delivered to the public and the way young people consumed information via social media. He decided to create a new kind of newscast with serious content aimed at that young audience. He said that he had tried to present nonpartisan views and assisted on high journalistic standards. Others have followed his lead, like Gaspar, uh, Gaspard Guillemont-Pré, 24, who runs similar accounts on YouTube and Instagram under the name Gaspard G. Gaspar, it doesn't matter. Today, the type of content that we are doing is growing much more so than entertainment or lifestyle content, Mr. Guillemont-Pré said. Mr. Travers and Mr. Gamon-Prey have created their own companies with employees assisting them in content creation and production. They did, uh, they both did extensive work on the presidential and legislative elections this year, dissecting platforms and interviewing candidates. Mr. Travers' interviews with two presidential candidates, Marine Le Pen, the far-right leader, and Jean Lassalle, the center-right politician who claims to represent the deep France ignored by the urban elite, are among the 10 most viewed videos about the elections in French on YouTube. Media analysts attribute Mr. Travers' popularity to his ability, as a digital native himself, to understand what appeals to young people. Quote, he is closer to his audience with his way of talking, of being. He is not wearing a suit, but a t-shirt, said Lisa Bowles, a researcher at CELSA, the Communications and Journalism School at Sorbonne. And you know the Sorbonne. That's where uh, Seth Romantelli's uh, French teacher learned French. Continue. 
Uh, Ocean Pan. He's closer to his audience, etc. Okay. Ocean Pan, a 16-year-old high school student who was waiting in line to study at a library in Paris on a recent Saturday, said she stayed informed mostly through Hugo Decrypt on Instagram and YouTube. She said she liked his content because he always reads the comments under his videos and tries to address the negative feedback. The dialogue with my followers is essential, Mr. Travers said. He cited an instance when he swapped out a YouTube video presenting the platform of the left-wing presidential candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon because his audience commented that the proposals it focused on, like legalizing cannabis and lowering the voting age to 16, seemed marginal. The new video instead focused more on Mr. Mélenchon's economic programs. Mr. Guillemont-Prez, Guillemont-Prez, Let's see. Let's say it totally correct. Mr. Guillaume Prey, who knows, said one challenge has faced was reaching a broader swath of young French people. He said that based on the survey he conducted, his followers were predominantly young adults who came from privileged backgrounds. Yeah, they're online. We are aware of our own bias, and we don't want to hammer out privileged urban issues to the vast majority of French people, he said. The keys are the tone and the way we deliver the content. This is still something we can improve on. Media analysts say that providing political news that keeps young audiences engaged has become all the more critical, as interest in politics seems to be sliding in France. In the second round of the presidential election this year, 41% of people age 18 to 24 abstained from voting, more than among the other more than among the other surveyed age groups. And 75% of those aged 18 to 24 skipped voting in the first round of the parliamentary elections June 12th. Well, I don't know if that's too unusual compared to here either. The YouTubers were looked at with some skepticism by traditional media when they got started. There was some... Like, is political discourse over there so fucking, like, not even existent that, like, a person doing, like, a YouTube channel about politics just like, having one it gets you two million viewers and, like, all this controversy? I mean, if you're interviewing 10 of 12 presidential candidates, there's no way you're ever saying anything that's not a softball. So I can't understand how... God, this has to be, like, keeping it 1600 or something. Ugh, awful. I imagine. I'm going to have to watch some. Tomorrow, I'm going to skip ahead. Tomorrow, media brands will be faces, not logos, Mr. Gamalampre said. Yes, absolutely. Miss Rist of YouTube France. Oh, I'm getting a call from Spam Risk. Better answer it. Ms. Rist of YouTube France said one effect of the success of news YouTubers was that French digital publishers were increasingly having reporters appear in their videos so that viewers feel a sense of connection with them. Still, many media analysts are divided about whether the efforts of YouTubers like Mr. Travers and Mr. Guillaume are serious journalism. Ms. Bowles, the researcher, said it was hard to say that uploading summaries for Mr. Travers' News of the Day could be considered journalism, but she conceded journalism has always been a constantly evolving profession. Mr. Travers acknowledged that the lines are blurred, but added, I don't think this is a problem. Mr. Travers and Mr. Guillaume both say their editorial teams are composed of professional journalists who maintain high standards, citing the ethics codes they have in place and the methods they use for gathering news. But, Mr. Guillaume said, many people in France still had not accepted the fact that the world of news had changed. 
Maybe it's part of the French neurosis, he said. We need some time to accept change. Yeah. You're living in like 1989. Um, the ultimate truth of the world is something that we make and could just as easily make better. That's what I say. Become the gate. Don't become the gatekeeper. Just become the actual gate itself. That's what I'm going to say. Make sense of that. Um, short sellers attack stablecoin tether. I thought this was great. I'm not going to read it, but I predicted that was going to happen. Um, jokingly, and it actually happened in real life. Uh, ugliest dog. Look at the picture of the ugliest dog. It's pretty cute. Um, let's see. Ironically, huh? Uh, let's see. GMAX got sentenced for too much GMAXing. Um... Worry about an impending apocalypse? For a cool $550,000, you can buy a one-bedroom, one-bathroom silo buried below the ground in Nebraska. The bunker built in 1962 is being sold along with six acres of land. It is once used to store missiles vertically. It has a clawfoot tub, a full kitchen, and lots of storage space. It was a hairy situation. More than 400 well-groomed gents gathered in Utah over the weekend to compete in the Great American Beard and Mustache Championship. Contestants were judged in 26 different categories based on hair location and style, although most contestants were men. Women were encouraged to apply. The buck stops here. A cryptocurrency and NFT-themed restaurant announced recently that it will stop accepting payments in the very currency that inspired its inception. Bored and Hungry Restaurant in Long Beach, California, opened in April and originally had its prices in dollars and cryptocurrencies like Ethereum. Okay, that's all I got. From that page, let's see. Lost, Jack, and Juliet. You were right. You're next to me when the. Oh, yes. Here's a quote that could only come from Lost. Uh, Jack says to Juliet, You were right there next to me when that submarine exploded. And he says that to be like, <laughs> make an emotional connection. I just love that. Um, anything else? No. That's a. Uh, let's see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just reading some notes here. Oh, yes. I forgot to mention. Uh, I'm going to play the clip on the other podcast, but uh, watch Survivor Season 3 and go to, like, uh, the food challenge. It was crucial that I forgot this, but they did this episode where they extract blood they basically drink blood, mix it with milk. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. But uh, other podcasts for the clip, obviously. Okay. Fun stuff. More fun stuff. Okay. Here we go. as well, since that's where it's going. Okay. 
Topless, <laughs> topless beach proposal makes waves in traditional Nantucket. Bylaw wins town approval but splits residents. We're not the vineyard. By Rory Satron. Nantucket, Massachusetts. At this year's annual Nantucket town meeting in May, islanders debated humdrum topics such as fertilizer, solar panels, short-term rentals, and the right to carry small plastic containers of alcohol, or NIPs. On day two, NIPs were banned by an overwhelming majority. This is an anti... Uh, Yes, there is an issue with waste. But I think we really know what that's about. And, and then I'm just trying to... Okay. On day two, NIPs were banned by an overwhelming majority, and the group moved on to a spicier topic. A citizen article proposing topless beaches. Remember this in the Wall Street Journal. So, yeah. Uh, this is uh, June 23rd. Um, all right. Zipping right along from nips to nipples, wisecracked the meeting's moderator, attorney Sarah F. Alger. Dorothy Stover, a sex educator and seventh-generation Nantucketer, pitched her citizen article to the community. In order to promote equality for all persons, any person shall be allowed to be topless on any public or private beach within the town of Nantucket. After an uproarious deliberation that pitted traditionalists against progressive townspeople, both young and old, the article passed 327 to 242. While the article must be approved by the Massachusetts Attorney General before it can be enacted, some on the island are already blushing a shade brighter than an Nantucket red of their rumpled chinos at the prospect. On an island with a historic district that carefully patrols its fence heights and paint colors, Quaker Gray and Hamilton Blue are among the 12 preferred shades, Topless beaches are unimaginable for many year-rounders and weekenders who gather to picnic with their extended families at spots like Jetty's Beach and Sconset Beach. Matt Tara, an investor based in Boston and Nantucket, spoke out against the proposal and meeting, citing architectural parallels. He said, we talk, about uh, <laughs> we talk about preservation, we talk about making sure that the shingles are, on the, uh, are the right gray, and talk about the right colors on our doors, yet we are going to pass something that would cause undue attraction to this island for the wrong reasons. Eve D. Messing, one of the article's proponents, retorted, I don't like to be compared to a shingle. My breasts are not shingles. Ms. Messing was one of the multiple people spanning several generations who defended the article at the gathering. Another was B. Gunella, who said Nantucket women have always practiced equality. It must be time, she said, to go out and buy some stock in Banana Boat, sunscreen. Linda Williams, a land use consultant who has been active in Nantucket's town government for decades, has attended almost every annual town meeting since 1974, said she was outraged by the citizen article. Ms. Williams, who said that she had been the first female gas pumper on the island, asked, why do I need to run around topless to prove that I'm just as good or better than a male? <laughs> Psychology. The bard of Nantucket, herself best-selling novelist Elin Hildebrand, said that while she loves that residents are open-minded enough to push the article through her the town meeting, as the mother of a teen girl, she didn't think it was safe for young women to be topless and then potentially photographed. She also didn't think it was right for the island. What a town council meeting. We're not the vineyard, she said, referring to neighboring Martha's Vineyard, where people have been known to sunbathe nude in some spots. You know, 
uh, wouldn't definitely wouldn't be any famous lawyers. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're not the vineyard there. She said it's more freewheeling, hippie, crunchy granola. Alan Dershowitz, they're a little bit more free love over there than Nantucket. And, uh, yeah. One Nantucket beach has long tacitly allowed topless sunbathing. Even though she doesn't see it working on Nantucket, Miss Hildebrand does see the narrative potential in the issue. I love The Nude Beach as the title of one of my future Nantucket novels, she said, playing with the idea that it could be set in the 1970s and involve spouse swapping. She's writing some good shit. Fully nude beaches aren't on the table. However, Mr. Stover was careful to delineate between full nudity and the toplessness her article proposes. She first had the idea for her proposal when she saw a comic that showed a man and a woman, both topless with similar bodies, with a man telling the woman she was indecent. That felt unfair to her. In this sense, the Citizen article is in line with the topless freedom movement, which aims for women to be able to be topless in the same places that men are. In the U.S., laws on toplessness are currently patchy and being challenged in different regions. A 2019 federal court ruling essentially made it legal for women to go topless in the same spaces as men in Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Massachusetts Attorney General has 90 days to rule on an Nantucket's uh, bylaw. Ms. Stover said that she has received more support for it than expected and embraced the dissident uh, the dissent as a healthy part of democracy. I definitely had a few people, even close to me, say that they didn't agree with it, which is a, which is beautiful, right? She said, that's democracy. That's being humans together and knowing that we're not going to agree. Interesting. Also from the June 23rd issue. Economy faces collapse, Sri Lanka says. Sri Lanka's prime minister said it was indebted, its indebted economy faced complete collapse as he laid the groundwork for what are expected to be tough austerity measures as part of negotiations over its budget and international monetary fund bailout. Sri Lankans have endured months of double-digit inflation, rolling power blackouts, and acute shortages in, flood and in food and medicines. A bailout from the IMF is the only option to avert an impending economic disaster, Prime Minister Raniel Rikmashingi said. We are now facing a far more serious situation beyond the mere shortages of fuel, gas, electricity, and food, he said on Wednesday. Our economy has faced a complete collapse. Sri Lanka is in the throes of its worst economic crisis after running out of foreign reserves to fund essential imports, a warning signal for potential financial trouble in the developing world from slowing growth and rising interest rates. As the U.S. Federal Reserve raises interest rates, the strain in many heavily indebted emerging market economies has been evident, with bond yields rising to some uh, and currencies hitting multi-year lows. Despite the pressure, economists say the risk for contagion when a crisis in one economy causes investors to flee from the assets of others appears to be contained for now. Sri Lanka defaulted for the first time in its history in May, and an IMF delegation arrived in the country on Monday to begin discussions on possible financial assistance. Authorities this week imposed a two-week shutdown of schools and non-essential government services to conserve fuel. Frustration has continued to swell after violent na nationwide protests prompted Mr. Rick Remenchi's predecessor, I'm sure I'm messing that up, 
Mahinda Rajapaska to, stop, uh, to step down as prime minister on May 9th. Food inflation soared to 57.4% in May, and lines for fuel have more than doubled in recent weeks. Across the country, lines make uh, lines snake for miles, with people sometimes waiting for days in the searing heat to refuel at gas pumps. Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaska, has blamed the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine, which some have, uh, which have hurt tourism revenue and driven up commodity prices for eroding the country's finances. But Sri Lanka's financial problems had taken root earlier, economists say, stemming from an accumulation of debt on infrastructure spending and tax cuts that have drained government revenue. Crucial to securing an IMF deal is a swift restructuring of external debt, with some $35 billion owed to so uh, <laughs> sovereign bondholders and bilateral creditors such as China and Japan. Prime Minister of Sri Lanka has said he intends to enter into an official agreement with the IMF by the end of July. Hmm. Don't worry about that. The avatars wear Prada and Balenciaga and... This is uh, Unbuttoned, a uh, fashion segment by Vanessa Friedman. Yes, yes. Thursday, June 23, 2022. Meta opens a fashion store for its metaverse, hoodie included. So that's it. Last October, after Mark Zuckerberg had unveiled his vision for the new Meta, formerly Facebook, and the amazing future that awaited in Web 3.0, and had been roundly teased for his decision to do so via an avatar wearing exactly the same thing as Mr. Zuckerberg wears in his everyday life, this, in a world of infinite possibility, <laughs> Meta picked up on the problem and threw down a gauntlet of sorts. Hey, Balenciaga, the company tweeted, what's the dress code in the metaverse? Like, obviously a marketing thing, like pre-planned. This week, Balenciaga responded along with Prada and Tom Brown, courtesy of Meta's new avatar fashion store, which began a rollout to users in the United States, Canada, Thailand, and Mexico through the social media company, uh, though the social media company had offered a variety of free and generic outfits for avatars used on Facebook, Instagram, Messenger. This is the first time it has enlisted named designers to create looks for purchase for virtual selves although that is not true balenciaga had already before this article came out had over more than once listed um excuse me uh, uh skins in fortnite which i would i would basically describe as the same thing so you know missed that i guess um hmm. Well, anyway, I guess the story I'm really going for is the one up above. When did perfume stop being about sex? New fragrances are no longer pitched as a seduction in a bottle. Now it's all about you. By Rachel Stogratz. When a new Yves Saint Laurent perfume came out in 2001, Tom Ford, the creative director of the house at the time, threw a sensational party at the Paris Stock Exchange, where he put a gaggle of practically nude models on display in a giant plexiglass container. The fragrance was called New, and New, French for nude. Linda Wells, founding editor-in-chief of Allure and a partygoer, likened Mr. Ford's soiree to a, quote, human aquarium teeming with models and writhing about in underwear. 
It was like a ball pit one might find at a children's birthday party, except bigger, alcohol-fueled, and packed with nearly naked adults. Well, it was almost a great party. It was all these bodies, Mr. Wells said. It was all this flesh. It was like an orgy, except it wasn't. Too bad. An event like that seems unimaginable today, and not just because unchecked hedonism became taboo after Me Too. Um, The whole marketing ideal has changed. Most designers and brands aren't using sex to sell perfume, and people aren't buying perfume to have sex. For decades, the marketing around perfume made seduction a priority. Fragrance was a bottled way to help someone find a mate, a construct that feels incredibly irrelevant ever since we now have dating apps, a more efficient and consistent way to find a partner than having someone catch your scent and fall in love with you. It just feels really old-fashioned and kind of offensive, Ms. Wells said. Now we, all, uh, now we all feel like this advertiser is going to tell me how I'm supposed to feel, or that I want to have sex because of their fragrance, or that I want to become an object because of their fragrance. Someone with a very limited imagination. Today, brands talk about fragrance in terms of places and how it will make the wearer feel. Smaller, niche perfumes, uh, niche perfume brands like Burrito or Lilabo are advertised as gender neutral. These brands don't play to outdated gender constructs and singular messaging about sex and sexual orientation. It's not a competition for which perfume is the sexiest. It's about which one can elicit the strongest emotional connection. According to Rachel Herz, a neuroscientist and the author of The Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell, perfume went from marketing uh, direct themes like power or sex to encouraging a personal journey. This journey could be one about self-empowerment or being the best you, which is what Glossier sells with Glossier You, according to its website. The scent will grow with you no matter where you are in your personal evolution because it's not, in a, it's not a finished product it needs you. Interesting marketing copy. Other fragrances take customers on a different journey. Harlem Nights from World of Chris Collins takes wearers to a speakeasy with notes of musk and rum that evoke cigars, top shelf liqueur, and 1920s nightlife. So when did perfume stop being about sex? Evolving gender ideals. Traditionally, perfumes were designed for men or women, rarely both, buoyed by multi-million dollar campaigns depicting traditional gender norms or hypersexualized images. Remember the Calvin Klein eternity ads from the 1980s with Christy Turlington and Ed Burns? Oh yeah, of course they do. What about that sultry Gucci Guilty campaign from 2010 with Evan Rachel Wood and Chris Evans? Both seem heteronormative in today's cultural climate. A younger generation with more fluid interpretations of what constitutes gender, sexual uh, orientation, and romantic relationships is leading the conversation. Gender-neutral and genderless have become mainstream concepts integral to fashion, makeup, fragrance, and no longer on the fringes. An uptick in unisex and genderless fragrance has followed. In fact, many of the niche and artisanal labels that have gained widespread appeal have never assigned gender to their fragrances. Burrito marketed its scents as unisex since Van Gorm founded the line in 2006. The same goes for Lilabo, Eccentric Molecules, DS and Durga, Malin and Goats, and Aesop. 
your gender, your nationality, your sexual orientation. It doesn't matter, said Chris Collins, the founder of and chief executive of World of Chris Collins. All 12 of the four-year-old brand scents are genderless. There should not be a distinction, he said. I agree. For global fragrance powerhouses, gender and romance are still quintessential to the mainstream appeal. While Dior's ad campaigns are not overtly sexual, the brand represents distinct feminine ideals. Though Miss Dior's ladylike campaigns, which have featured Natalie Portman since 2011, as well as those gilded J'adore Dior ads in which Charlize Theron has channeled a Greek goddess for 18 years, romance is not necessarily passé, Miss Hers said. It is the representation of romance that are more abstract. She explained, because things are less defined by heterosexuality than they were a decade ago. Debatable. Why we wear perfume now. During the pandemic, with stores closed and limited ways to test perfume before buying, Suzanne Sabo, 45, from Levittown, PA, blind bought perfume to treat herself. The first fragrance she ordered was from Tom Ford Beauty's Jasmine Rouge, which she discovered through an ad online. There is nothing sensual or sexual about it, said Ms. Sabo, a grant writer at a technological high school. It was so basic. It was a description of the scent. I felt like a new woman just wearing the perfume in sweats around my house. I felt like a million bucks. I would say I also had a similar experience with um, uh, Black Opium. I love that. The perfume. Loved it. Still do. Wear, wear it today. Miss Sabo's Tom Ford fragrance collection has grown to include Lost Cherry, Soleil Blanc, White Suede, and Bitter Peach. It's not like we live in the wealthy part of town, she said. We're middle-class moms who were stressed. Rachel Ten Brink, a general partner at Red Bike Capital and a, for a founder of the perfume line Scentbird, saw customers start to adopt this mentality several years ago. The top the top response from a 2015 survey asking Scentbird customers why they were war fragrance was how it made me feel. Attracting the opposite sex was number six or seven, Miss Ten Brink said. Others use fragrance as a vehicle for self-expression. Carries Bassett, an IT, well, I'd say that's almost the same thing. Cyber consultant and conspiracy. I like to have my presence lingering after I left the room. I'm not that fueled by sex, but I like to make a statement. Smaller independent brands are often more creative in their approach to perfume making, highlighting individual ingredients and notes, or using a story to attract customers. Fragrances are often stronger, bolder, and more expensive than department store stalwarts, synonymous with a fragrance store purchase. Which has no sense. Okay, that's enough. MPD group tracks sales. Mm -hmm. That's enough. So, um, wear whatever scent you want. No rules. Uh, Congress is investigating uh, an NFL owner. More about that in the future when there's more details. Here's a little uh, Teen Mom OG news. 
Teen Mom OG star Farrah Abraham was charged with battery and allegedly slapping a guard outside a Hollywood club in January. She has an arraignment today, according to court docs obtained by page six. Abraham above, 31, is facing up to a year in prison and a $2,000 fine. Her arraignment appears on the criminal case calendar of L.A. Superior Court. And her lawyer told the U.S. Sun, Miss Abraham committed no crime and is, in fact, the victim in all of this. I'm going to assume, actually. Um, okay. That's enough. Popular Montauk spot Rush Myers has lost its temporary liquor license for breaking stipulations laid out by the state liquor authority, including the no dancing rule. The hotel restaurant was granted a provisional license in May with a number of caveats due to issues the town of East Hampton had with the space last year. A rep for the SLA told Page Six they've, quote, received a referral from the East Hampton Police Department that on June 10th, an officer responding to an unruly patron at Rush Myers documented patrons dancing in two separate areas inside the establishment, in violation of their approved temporary retail permit. Additionally, one of the stipulations for the venue, which is now supposed to be operating, quote, strictly as a restaurant, was that they could have a, quote, background recorded music only, for example, no DJs. Rush Myers could not be reached for comment. We hear a full liquor license for the business is currently pending. Ray's Originals. That's one way to test out new material. Ray Romano brought his comedy shtick to neighborhood kids while picking up food at Made in New York Pizza on the Upper West Side, we hear. After ordering slices, the Queens native and Everybody Loves Raymond star turned to a bunch of kids and asked, why do you think they call it Made in New York Pizza? We know where we are. Isn't it obvious? A spy told Page Six Romano. Had them take all these wild guesses, and they were cracking up. It was hilarious. You could tell it was his night off. Romano made his directorial debut at the Tribeca Film Festival. This film, Somewhere in Queens, this night. Hilarious. Crack me up. My sides are split. Slap my knees. Oh, I just want to say that I saw um, there's a list in the Wall Street Journal, June 23rd, Thursday's issue uh, of the world's most influential decision makers. Just a giant list of people. I'm sure those are really important people. Who knows what they are? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. New Mexico, Santa Fe, USA Today, 50 states, June 23rd. A coalition of diverse voices has ramped up efforts to add federal protections to Kaya. Del Rio, a rugged volcanic plateau, critical of the story of New Mexico and the Pueblo and Hispano people, where his ancestors called the area home for generations. Okay, that's that stack of papers going. Okay. Here's just a little heads up. Twitter gives Musk access to Firehose. This is Thursday, June 9th, 2022, by Lauren Hirsch and Mike Isaac. Last one. 
Elon Musk has threatened to pull out of a $44 billion deal for Twitter, saying the company has refused to give him information about its fake accounts. So, Twitter now plans to give Mr. Musk access to a large swath of its data, potentially down to its very last tweet. Now, this is an interesting wrinkle that I hadn't actually read about, despite this being from the night. The social media company has agreed to allow Mr. Musk to direct access to its firehose, quote, in quotes, the stream of millions of tweets that flow through the company's network on a daily basis, according to a person with knowledge of the decision. Whether Mr. Musk will get full or partial access to that firehose is unclear. The information would give Mr. Musk the tools to discern how many accounts on Twitter's platform may be fake, but it isn't likely to help him reach Twitter's conclusion that 5% of its active accounts are fake since the company uses a different methodology involving proprietary data and human analysis to get that figure. Mr. Musk has said he doesn't believe that just 5% of Twitter's active accounts are fake. Twitter's move may make it more difficult for Mr. Musk to, re, uh, re, to terminate the deal. Right. On Monday, his lawyers sent a letter to the company accusing it of stonewalling his efforts to obtain information that was essential to closing the acquisition. For weeks, Mr. Musk has also tweeted increasingly barbed comments about Twitter's fake accounts, appearing to lay the groundwork for, uh, to renegotiate or get out of the agreement. Mr. Musk agreed, agreed to buy Twitter in April for $54.20 a share. The deal falls apart. There is a $1 billion breakup fee. But the agreement includes a specific performance clause which gives Twitter the right to sue him and force him to compete or pay for the deal so long as debt financing he has corralled remains intact, which I believe has fallen apart, or at least temporarily. A Twitter spokesman declined to comment on giving Mr. Musk access to the stream of tweets but referred to a previous statement. Twitter has and will continue to cooperatively share information with Mr. Musk to, con to consummate the transaction in accordance with the terms of the merger agreement. Twitter has said, we believe this agreement is in the best interest of all shareholders and will intend to, and we intend to enclose and enforce the merger agreement with agreed price and terms. As of April, Twitter reported that it had 229 million monetizable daily active users. Of those, Twitter has estimated that about 5% are fake. On Monday, Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas, also said he was opening an investigation into fake accounts on Twitter and how they affect citizens in the state. Strategists said the move uh, was a politically expedient way to align with Mr. Musk, Tesla, and Tesla, Mr. Musk's electric automobile business, has its headquarters in Austin, Texas. Yes, of course. I skipped forward to mention that just because it's you know, clear that he's getting involved in Texas politics and we, we know where that's going. I don't. Who likes thinking about that? No one. So that's it. That's everything. Those are all the papers. I'm going to pick another song together and then we're going to go out. Look at all that. Look, we got through that big old stack of papers together. How much time is that? 134. <sighs> we're going to go out in a song. Good for us. We learned a lot today. I even skipped some things. Getting good at this. Listen to that paper. Mm. Even read a book. Okay, so. What have we been talking about? What would we go good? What would we go good?
All right. Goodbye, everyone. Um, please enjoy the online presence and please go listen to the podcast Reality Issues if you made it this far. I'd be very happy if you did. Goodbye.